<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. 19 dead children. Two dead school teachers. Guys, what the hell is going on out there? I am as conservative as they come. I own guns. I even own a quote-unquote assault weapon. I have a concealed carry license. And I am pissed off this week. I am pissed off this week because in the aftermath of this unspeakable atrocity, coming almost 10 years after the last time this happened in Newtown, Connecticut, at Sandy Hook Elementary School, almost 10 years after this happened, it's still happening. And I'm not just talking about your average weekend in Chicago with South Side or West Side gun violence, gang violence, turf wars. We're talking here about mentally ill, loner, loser, young men shooting up children. Evil incarnate. So we're going to bring on soon Allie Beth Stuckey, who I've known for a few years now. Allie Beth Stuckey is both a Texan and a Christian. She should have some great insights for us trying to kind of work our way through this utterly depressing, really just makes you want to tear your freaking hair out kind of news cycle here. But look, in the first 24 to 36 hours in the aftermath of this latest mass shooting in Uvalde, it seems like we're just back to where we always are when something like this happens. We are talking again about quote unquote gun control. Senator Chris Murray from Connecticut, who really became a spokesperson for this stance in the aftermath of the Newtown shooting in his state, went on the Senate floor and basically said, I am begging on my knees to do something about gun control. But I'm here on this floor to beg, to literally get down on my hands and knees and beg my colleagues, find a path forward here. Work with us to find a way to pass laws that make this less likely. Look, I speak for a lot of conservatives when I say that I want to do something. I really genuinely do. I come from a line of teachers. My mom is an elementary school teacher. She's retiring next month. She's served an incredible career. My grandmother was a special education elementary school teacher. My great-grandmother, who I never even met, passed away before I was born. She was a special education teacher in elementary school. This stuff really jars you. I think it hits you to your bones. And we truly do need to do something. How every school in America, 10 years again after Sandy Hook, does not have armed security at minimum, 
Hold aside the slightly more controversial debate over arming teachers who want to be armed. I happen to agree with that stance too. But hold that aside. Why at a bare minimum, every school in America does not have armed security 10 years after Sandy Hook? It really makes the mind real. Does the left hate guns this much that they are incapable of understanding that there is such thing as a quote-unquote good man with a gun? Do they understand the idea that sometimes the best way to defeat evil is with good? And in this case, the best way to make sure we have that good is to arm that good? Why is every state legislature not doing this? The status quo, as I understand it, usually is for each superintendent at a local level to decide for him or herself whether to arm the schools. That is not good enough. This shouldn't be a case-by-case situation. I think back to the mass shooting. God, there have been too many. I think back to the mass shooting at the theater in Aurora, Colorado, another state where I used to live in, just like Texas. Aurora, Colorado, back in 2012. The lunatic who shot up that theater during the playing of, of The Dark Knight Rises, if I remember correctly. The lunatic apparently chose that theater because it was the only theater in like a 15, 20, 25 mile radius, whatever, that did not allow for concealed carry for moviegoers inside the theater. So leaving it up to a superintendent on a state-by-state level is not good enough. The same thing will happen. We have to mandate this. Does the left understand that in the year 2022, there are more firearms in circulation in America than human beings? Think about that. There are literally more guns in this country than people. So to the extent that you want to quote-unquote control guns, consider the possibility that that ship sailed a long time ago. That was a decision that America could have made to not arm its citizenry at a point in time. But we chose to arm ourselves in the form of the Second Amendment back in the 1790s. So I want to have a conversation, especially about involuntary commitment, taking these insane loser, 18-year-old psychopaths off the street Get them into the asylums. But no, I fear that we're just going to talk about assault weapons. Good God. Well, our guests hopefully will help us break through the fog here and get at some real solutions. Our guest, of course, is Ali Beth Stuckey. We're going to be right with Ali Beth Stuckey on the other side of this commercial break. Stay with us. You're listening to The Josh Hammer Show. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So 
Welcome back. As we mentioned earlier, thrilled to be joined this week. Very difficult week, but I think we have a great guest to help us kind of get through the pain and the suffering. So our guest this week is Ali Beth Stuckey. She is the host of Relatable, a Blaze TV podcast. Someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years now. So Ali, thanks so much for being on the podcast this week. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So you know, let's just let's just dive right in. There's no better way, I think, of diving right in. I mean, you're so publicly a Christian. I'm a Jew. I think our religions have fairly similar ways of answering the theodicy question, probably not directly the same. But just talk us through how, from your perspective, how you as someone of faith, how you deal with the news of a an unspeakably evil act like that, which we witnessed this week in Uvalde, Texas. Yeah, I think what we share is understanding the character and the nature of God and one of the aspects of God being sovereignty. Now, this is also, I think, one of the most confusing aspects of God, knowing that he is all good, that he is all present, that he is all knowing, that evil like this happens. It's kind of easy to say, oh, yeah, bad things happen. It's a fallen world. We know sin entered the world. And so there are going to be consequences of that. That's kind of easy to say, I think, especially when things are going well. But when you look at this specific kind of evil, I mean, we're talking about school children. We're talking about parents who dropped their kids off, having every reason to think that they would pick them up in the afternoon, that they were about to enjoy a summer together. Their kids were going to go to summer camp and do all the normal day-to-day family things that kids and parents do together, it's hard to reconcile that with what we know about the nature of God. But this is where I think specifically Christian theology comes in and our eschatology comes in, what we think about the end times, how we think things are going to culminate. And of course, the Christian believes that Jesus is going to return, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he will actually do something about the wickedness, about the evil, about the oppression, about the injustice, that one day that will there will be no injustice or sorrow or pain or sickness or sadness, and that he will rule in perfect peace and in perfect righteousness. And so how I kind of reconcile the sovereignty of God, all of the characteristics of God that we know with the evil and wickedness that we see occurring is that, okay, this is not God being apathetic or just kind of sitting on his hands and not caring about what's going on, but that he actually does have a redemptive plan, ultimate plan that is going to do away with evil forever. So I'm comforted by the fact that nothing escapes his sovereign will. I'm also comforted by the Christian belief that one day justice and righteousness will have the final word through Christ. So that's kind of what I remind myself of, even in the midst of all of my, you know, second to second practical fears as a mom, that doesn't mean that I'm not worried. Doesn't mean that I'm not scared. Doesn't mean that I'm not really sad. But of course, in those quiet and anxious moments, I have to remind myself of what Christians believe. So that's actually a good segue. So you are, you are a mom. Um, So from a mother's perspective, I guess, what would you like to what what would you like to happen? I mean, what should happen from a protect yeah. children in schools perspective? What would you personally like to see from a public policy standpoint moving forward? 
Yeah. I, so I do actually understand the knee-jerk reaction from some people, particularly liberals, but also just people who aren't really politically involved to just say, well, we just need to take the guns away. There's always going to be crazy people. There's always going to be bad people, but at least let's take the tools out of their hands. I understand that knee-jerk reaction. It takes a little bit more patience, a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more critical thinking to ask what is actually going to be effective? What laws can we put on the books that would have specifically prevented something like this? So if for all of us, our goal is saved lives, if for all of us, our goals are fewer mass shootings, fewer casualties, then we should be asking those questions, those real solutions, uh, solutions oriented questions. What would actually stop this while, of course, still protecting the constitutional rights of law abiding citizens? I'm willing to have those political conversations. I don't think that we should completely shun them. I think we should, you know, have conversations um, about actual solutions, not just kind of the knee jerk reaction of trying to inhibit people's rights. Um, However, I think that we probably both agree that there is a much deeper sickness and societal rot that we are experiencing. I personally don't think that it is a coincidence that as we have um, church attendance dwindling or really any faith service attendance dwindling as godlessness grows, that we are also seeing a rise in feelings of depression, of loneliness, of anxiety. I think we have a meaninglessness epidemic, especially among young people. I'm sure the last couple of years have only exacerbated that. And on top of that, I think that we have failed to give them good examples in a lot of cases of strong masculinity. I think that we have failed to offer them purpose and meaning ways to channel their strength and their aggression, which is natural to men in healthy ways. We have failed to provide them with community. We have failed to give them opportunities toward hard work. All young people are especially today or just have been inundated with instant gratification and convenience their whole lives. I mean, that really is like a phenomenon throughout human history that we have a whole generation of boys who have never had to work for anything that they want or need. I think that affects everyone man or woman, but I think that particularly affects men. I think that God created men to be providers and protectors, to channel their aggression and strength in good ways, to be warriors and hunters and all of those things. Boys just don't have opportunities for that. So I think that how they are channeling their aggression in some ways, obviously, this is not just a general statement, um, can be very unhealthy. I think there's nothing more dangerous to society than men and boys who have nothing to do, who have nothing to live for. There's also, I don't think anything more beneficial to society, better for society than boys and men who have purpose, who have love, who have an obligation to their communities and their families and responsibilities. So there's so many things. There's so many other things that we're that we could talk about. But the fact of the matter is, is that our foundation as a society has just rotted. It's eroded with amorality and apathy and purposelessness, as well as the things that once held us together. Our connectivity is also broken. Um, yeah, there's a million other things that I could point to that I think contribute to all of this, but I think that's at least part of it. No, it definitely is part of it. And you had this really remarkable tweet thread, actually, in the aftermath of this tragedy in Texas. I think a lot of people a lot of leftists in particular will look at this spate of mass shootings, Buffalo, Uvalde, and they do share, it seems like, one thing in common, which these are young, troubled, loner young men. 
And I think the leftist instinct is to look at this and say, oh, toxic masculinity, you know, let's do away with manliness, let's do away with manhood. But you're basically suggesting the exact opposite. And your tweet that you say, you say here, quote, we seem to be horribly failing the young men in this country. Then you continue, quote, that's the one commonality in the vast majority of mass shootings. It's not race or ideology. They're young males. We are doing absolutely everything wrong when it comes to promoting healthy masculinity, purpose and goodness for these boys and men. So I want to pick up in that last sentence when it comes to, quote unquote, promoting healthy masculinity, purpose and goodness. There's a huge role here, obviously, for churches, for synagogues, for kind of the private religious institutions in particular. But what what can from a public policy perspective, from from a kind of a legislation or just a conservative kind of political perspective, what can we be doing to promote kind of a, a, a healthy masculinity or healthy manliness? It, it's a tough question. I'm not sure that I have any easy answers myself, to be honest with you. Yeah, it is a tough question. I don't know the specific policy answer to that. I mean, I do think one of the biggest problems is fatherlessness, which has been enabled and exacerbated by the welfare state. That's not the only thing driving fatherlessness. I think a lot of what we just talked about with the moral and cultural rot that we've experienced as a society has contributed to that. But the government has hurt the cohesion of the family more than it's helped. So I don't know if it's a new policy or if it's removing just the failing policies that have especially hit poor communities over the past several decades. And so that's, I mean, that's a general answer from, I guess, the policy perspective. But I was thinking as you were asking the question about like why leftist would just not want to have the conversation about maybe how we're treating men or how we're teaching and mentoring men and boys in the society. And I really think it goes back to a difference, a disagreement in what conservatives and progressives think about human beings and human nature. Like progressives tend to think that human beings are solely a product of nurture. They're solely a product of their environment. I mean, that's part of the whole conversation about gender is that, oh, men and women just have these particular characteristics because they've been taught that, because society told them that, because they saw that in the media. Whereas my perspective, I think the conservative perspective is that there is actually an innate nature that we have. There's nature and nurture. Of course, environmental factors matter, but we actually believe that there is a human nature. That's part of why, you know, the left believes that communism could work in the right circumstances or their different policies can change how people function and think. Conservatives realize that there is like a nature that policy must submit to in order for them to work. So I think that's one of like the disagreements that we have here is that they believe that if we just change the law or if we just change, I don't know, depictions of masculinity, if we try to get rid of any gender differences, if we try to downplay masculinity, then society will be more neutered. Like men will suddenly at this point in history, learn how not to be men, how not to be aggressive and how not to be strong. I don't know. The fact of the matter is, is that human nature is like a beach ball. You can try to push it underwater. It's eventually going to pop back up. And I think that we are seeing in these discussions after something like this, a fundamental disagreement about human nature. The left never wants to talk about morality. They never want to talk about choices. They never want to talk about like real cultural issues that require heart change, that require recalibration of our values as a society. They only want to talk about policies that would coincidentally give their politicians 
more power. So yeah, that's just an aside I wanted to mention, like our disagreements, even about something like guns, they go so much further than just policy differences. They really go back to our disagreement about human beings and sin and evil, all of it. It does really kind of cut to a fundamental difference in worldview between kind of the right and the left, at least in in modern America. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. So we're here with Ali Beth Sucky. We'll be right back after this. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's try the best we can to try as hard as it is on daylight today to move on to slightly sunnier topics. So the initial reason that I want you to come on was I think that you and I were very much on the same page as far as this recent battle that happened here in my state of Florida between Governor Ron DeSantis and the Walt Disney Company and specifically kind of what it says more about to kind of tie actually both of these conversations together to kind of tie and, and what it says about more a, a more muscular kind of hands on approach to fighting political victory. You might you might even call it a more kind of masculine approach to conservatism. I've gotten I've gotten kind of whacked in the past for using that description by certain people in our purported side of the aisle, but it's OK. So kind of walk us through what you saw when you saw Governor DeSantis take take on Disney and why you think it was such an important kind of inflection point in our culture war. Yeah. So you and I have talked about, and maybe you were the first person to kind of introduce me to this phrase that I think describes this moment is knowing what time it is. I think Ron DeSantis is one of the only Republican politicians who know what time it is. I think Democrats to their credit always know what time it is in that to them, it is always time for them to be aggressive and to take more power and to be on the offense. And I think that conservatives typically kind of fall back on, no, 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 no. Let us just be neutral. Just give us our, just give us our neutrality back. And I think that Ron DeSantis recognizes that at least for the time being, that's just not a good enough goal. That's not a good enough strategy. And so I mean, he took an approach that I think a lot of conservatives who are traditionally pro-business wouldn't take, and that is taking away a privilege from a large corporation because this corporation, Disney, basically stated that they were going to make it their aim to make sure that a law that was passed by a duly elected legislature and a duly elected governor was overturned. The irony, of course, is that that is anti-democratic. And so all the people that say that they love democracy who are for that have a lot of explaining to do. Um, But I think that if I think that DeSantis recognizes that if he if Republicans who are in power are not the ones to push back against that anti-democracy move by one of the biggest and largest and most lucrative corporations in the world, then no one else will. Um, or no one else can, like no one else has the ability to do that. And so he simply used 
the constitutional tools that are in his toolkit to ensure that the desires of his constituency, the majority of his constituency, uh, were honored. I don't see, not only do I not see anything wrong with that, I don't even see any other viable alternative to that if you are someone who really cares about the tyranny that comes in the form of woke capital. So yeah, he just continues to impress me, but um, I was very impressed by that particular move. And I think that it has, you know, it's had good ramifications already. Like we really didn't see corporations speak out about Roe v. Wade when the leaked draft was published. And so I just have to wonder, is that because, you know, Republicans decided that they were going to have a spine or Ron DeSantis decided he was going to have a spine and those companies said, eh, you know, maybe it's not worth it. That's what we want. We want those companies to think maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth saying this or standing against this. And Ron DeSantis has, at least from my perspective, helped accomplish that. Yeah, no, I'm happy you said that. I mean, I can think of three concrete recent examples. So you're referring to there was this major kind of PR company. I can't remember what it's called that had this memo that I, I maybe was leaked, maybe it was public. I'm not sure to its corporate clients that basically said, do not comment, <laughs> do not comment on the Dobbs case, this abortion case in the Supreme Court, because, you know, you may face possible kind of backlash for that. And then there was this recent example out of Netflix where the CEO of Netflix basically says, oh, if you have a problem with us showing Dave Chappelle or, yes. or Ricky Gervais or whatever, go somewhere else. I mean, then maybe Netflix is not the company for you. And then there was this other example last month that no one on our side seems to be talking about. It was totally swept under the rug. Someone at ExxonMobil, maybe it was even the CEO, someone high up the corporate food chain there, basically said that if you are an employee here, you are prohibited from flying the rainbow flag or the Black Lives Matter flag. And all three of these things happened in the direct aftermath of DeSantis taking on Disney. So, I mean, I called the DeSantis effect. To me, kind of the the causal chain just seems very clear. So one thing that I I think some people are starting to grapple with, maybe folks who kind of use uh, this colorful phrase, perhaps don't quote unquote know what time it is. I think some folks on our side are struggling with, with the idea that this divorce is happening between the conservative movement and the corporations, between big business, between the Chamber of Commerce. And I think you and I, who are both kind of more culture war oriented conservatives by our nature, don't really have a big problem with that. But I guess what would be your message to the folks on, on our, even on our own side who are still kind of struggling with this new reality we are facing where corporate America really is no longer our friend? You know, it's a little bit of whiplash, I understand, for people who maybe they're outside observers and they think that us kind of waging war against these corporations or being for someone like DeSantis waging war against these corporations that, oh, well, isn't this cancel culture? I thought that conservatives were against cancel culture. Well, honestly, yes, I'm against cancel culture in the sense that I don't think that you should seek an individual out who tweeted something inappropriate 10 years ago and try to destroy their life. I would say that that's not the same thing as all at all as waging war against these corporations. However, I could see how someone would have that misunderstanding. And maybe that's, you know, a mistake of messaging on conservatives part that when we were talking about the dangers of cancel culture, that we made it seem like really what we wanted was to just kind of be left alone and that we didn't want to engage at all or that we just kind of wanted neutrality. And now you hear people saying, well, actually, we think that we should be on the offense. Like we actually think that we should be pushing back against these corporate policies. We should be pushing back against the insidiousness of of wokeness. And I do think that there 
is kind of like a shift of attitudes there that, okay, if that is cancel culture, um, if that is, you know, I don't know, whatever it is that may have a negative connotation, like I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with these companies feeling the repercussions of politicians who at the behest of their constituents are, you know, pushing back against them. I don't know if I want to use the word punish, hold them accountable. Maybe that's like the better option, but also like on the, on like the culture war level, I'm also okay. Maybe I wouldn't have said this a year ago. Like I am also okay with the teachers who are pushing this radical gender ideology who are exposed by libs of TikTok. I'm okay with them getting fired. Like I'm okay with those school board members who are pushing this kind of stuff, getting fired. I don't want anything you know bad to happen to them or anything like that, but I, I guess I'm more okay with that form of so-called warfare than I would have said that I was maybe a couple years ago. I think that is part of knowing what time it is that if we want to get rid of the rot that is rotting our schools, that we have to be okay with that form of accountability. Yeah, look, I, I, I think you and I are on the same page on this, right? And I, I think just about kind of the nature of where we are and the need for politicians, whether it's Governor DeSantis, whether it's former President Trump, but politicians to just basically just not hide the ball, to just very clearly pronounce what the enemy foreign or domestic looks like. And I would submit to you that teachers that are trying to indoctrinate our children into kind of woke gender ideology, basically trying to effectively groom children, right? Those are enemies. I mean, those, as far as I'm concerned, those are, those are not just people that we can just agree to disagree with. These are people that have to be punished within the confines of the rule of law, of course. But, you know, I got back last night, actually, to Florida from D.C., and I, I was in, in Hungary a few months ago. I kind of met Prime Minister Orban. I was very surprised. I just want to read this to you. So I got this letter in the mail, actually. I was very surprised to see this from the prime minister's office. And this letter says it's about kind of the recent election where they kind of had, uh, you know, the Fidesz party, Orban's party famously won, but they had this referendum about kind of protecting children from gender ideology. And the referendum won by like an overwhelming landslide. But this is a formal letter from the prime minister reads, quote, Hungarian support for the protection of our children and the rejection of gender indoctrination has proved greater than that for any other proposition since the fall of communism. You know, imagine if we had Republicans here in the U.S. who just like use like that kind of clarion language. Right. But I yeah. but, but but surely the ball is rolling in our direction. Right. I mean, with, with Trump obviously kind of shifting the Overton window with some of his admittedly kind of rhetorical excesses, perhaps sometimes, but kind of just kind of using the right language DeSantis. I mean, do, do you see this kind of getting to the point where we are no longer afraid to just say what it is we have to say? I know that you and I do this in our podcast every day. It does feel like that, doesn't it? And I'm not sure. What makes me feel like that, besides some of the things that you were talking about, that some of those corporations who previously wouldn't have been afraid at all to fly the BLM flag, they're kind of taking a second look at it. I mean, think about just a couple of years ago that Disney said that they were no longer going to film or work in Georgia because of the heartbeat bill. I think there were a couple of corporations that did that, you know, even as they're filming in Xinjiang in China. And now they're not even commenting on this leak you know, leak draft um, about the Dobbs decision. So it does seem like there is a little bit more trepidation on that side. And I also see in things like, you know, you mentioned Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle, 
when it comes to the gender thing, I mean, they're making light of it. They're mocking it. They're mocking this idea that a man can become a woman. And I'm not under any you know, delusion that these are conservatives, that I share the same worldview or that they even you know, would vote Republican. I don't think Dave Chappelle is some Republican. However, I think the fact that there is bravery now or there is a willingness to mock that idea to make fun of it, to make light of it, I think that is a really good indication for at least on that issue um, where things where things are headed, that the absurdity has reached such a point that you can't ignore it anymore. Um, and that's scary for its implications in some ways. Um, but I also think it's a good thing. And I, I truly think that libs of TikTok, I know it's just <laughs> a Twitter account, but truly- It's an important one. Heard Yes, just revealing what is actually happening. I mean, sunlight truly is the best disinfectant. I think that's part of what we're seeing as well. And Chris Rufo, all the people that are kind of uncovering all of that kind of stuff have just helped push that ball in in the right direction. Yeah, it really seems to me like Chris has honestly been more productive as a single young man than probably like half the conservative think tanks like combined, right? I mean, it's really an incredible story. Um, so God bless Chris Rufo and the work that he's doing. But that, it, that does kind of tie to the next question I wanted to ask you. I mean, you know, like I, I live here in Florida, you're in Texas, which are both red states, but they're not necessarily deep red states. But I think they're actually going to start to get deeper, honestly, based on the current trend lines, at least that I'm seeing. I mean, the polling for, out of like the Latino community from a conservative exactly. perspective is 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 pretty crazy insofar as how good it is. I mean, literally, there was a poll I saw a few months ago. Latinos in the U.S. had a higher disapproval rating of Joe Biden than whites, which is really just incredible. I mean, are you as optimistic about kind of the demographics and the future of some of these kind of sunbelt states like Florida and Texas as I am? I am way more optimistic about the Hispanic communities than I am white women, (laughs) white suburban women, because I see like I see the content that is produced on, you know, like from the people where most white women, apolitical white women, I, I see where they're getting their information and the things that they believe in here. And it's just utter emotional manipulation and propaganda. And it seems to me like, especially the Hispanic communities that live on the border of Texas, they have a lot more practical concerns, even if they have family members. I was thinking about this the other day, because I think that Democrats, you know, they bet on the fact that, oh, if we're pro illegal immigration then the Hispanic communities that live here, well, you know, they'll vote for us. But even if they have family members who are illegal immigrants, even if even if they have close, you know, close loved ones who are illegal immigrants, that doesn't necessarily mean they think it's right in general. There are a lot of things that, you know, we might feel justified in doing or we might feel was justified for a family member that if someone asked us, well, do you think it's good for everyone to do that? Do you think that that is something that should be institutionalized? We would say no. So I just don't think it was a good bet that they made that if they're pro-illegal immigration, that they're going to win the Hispanic communities. I mean, talk about just refuting this whole, there's been so much propaganda about replacement theory and what it is, even though Democrats have explicitly said that they want to change demographics so more people will vote Democrat. Um, Well, that theory may never materialize. It may not conclude the way they want it to conclude simply because their message to Latinx or Latinx. I don't know how they (laughs) pronounce it. It's just not working. I mean, I think that's exactly why 
you saw when there were um, there were Cubans trying to flee Cuba, try to come to Florida. That was like the only time that you saw the DHS said, oh, no, no illegal immigrants coming in here. We're going to make sure that's not going to happen because they were fleeing communism because they knew that they probably weren't going to be able to be manipulated by the Democratic Party quite as much. So it'll be interesting if it goes the way that you're saying that it might go, that Hispanics tend to you know, vote Republican. It'll be interesting to see if there is yet another pivot on immigration from the Democratic Party. Yeah, the very fact that the quote unquote word Latinx is a thing, I think literally <laughs> is the reason that Hispanics yeah. are fleeing the Democratic Party because they are. Yeah, I mean, they are they are usually Christian, disproportionately Catholic, although there is kind of a rising evangelical sect of the of the Hispanic community as well. And they they hate the woke crap. I mean, these are generally kind of working class, family oriented peoples. But let's kind of conclude uh, just uh, one final question here on a topic that I know is dear to your heart. I've been on your podcast to discuss it numerous times which, of course, is the abortion issue. So we're, you know, we're nearing this decision from the Supreme Court that um, if the justices do hold, according to leaked opinion, uh, well, first of all, I guess my question would be, do you think it'll hold? Do you predict that the justice will stand strong amidst this unprecedented leak and intimidation campaign? Second question would be, assuming it does hold and abortion goes back to the states, what would you like to see there in Texas as kind of a pro-life spokesperson there in a red state? Yeah, so I do think it's going to hold. Um, I do. Maybe that's just kind of me being optimistic. But I think that even just the optics, if it doesn't hold, would be really bad for the Supreme Court. And we know that that is something that Roberts cares about, or he says that he cares about anyway. And to me, it would look like they caved to public pressure. And if you're worried about the institution of the Supreme Court, uh, then I would think that you would care about that. You wouldn't want it to seem like they caved to the mobs outside of Kavanaugh's home. Um, I do. So I do predict predict that it is going to be upheld. What I hope in conservative states, um, I hope that abortion is banned. Now, people hear that and they say, well, what about what about the life of the mother? Of course, I believe that early delivery is the option for women whose life needs to be saved if they are pregnant. That's not the same thing as deliberately killing a child inside the womb. Um, I think that there should be so much care and so much compassion for women who are pregnant, for women in crisis. And people say, well, you need to support XYZ Democratic program in order to truly be pro-life. But look, I know for a fact that there are hundreds of pro-life pregnancy centers in Texas who do incredible work helping women, providing for women and families who need resources, who need baby items, who need parenting classes, who need adoption help. There are all kinds of resources and tools and avenues available for women who need it. But look, if I believe that a human being inside the womb is indeed a human being made in the image of God, then I believe at the very least that that child should have a right to life, which means I don't believe that they should ever be intentionally killed. Well, a hearty amen to that. I think you and I obviously are on the same page on that one, but that's a great, great note to end on. So thank you so much for joining this week, Ali. Hope to see you soon. Thanks so much. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I do think that the idea as to whether man is good or evil kind of in his or her DNA is a major difference between kind of a more religious Judeo-Christian and, uh, I, you know, certainly a Jewish perspective. I, I, I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert in Christian theology. I am not. But to the extent that I understand that is also a Christian perspective, that, of course, is the concept of original sin in the Garden of Eden. But this idea that man was kind of uh, naturally inclined towards doing harm, towards doing bad things, towards doing some good things, sure, of course, to be to be clear. But it's very difficult, really, to read the Bible and to not conclude that man is capable of doing horrible, horrible things. And obviously, you know, in, in the Old Testament, what Jews will call the Torah, of course, God is there to wield punishment as appropriate. But the, the flip side of that, the kind of progressive view of humanity as fundamentally good, that really has kind of taken on a lot of modern connotations as far as kind of left-wing policy and even liberal jurisprudence. And I think kind of the perfect quote of this, those of you who are more familiar with some of my writings and speeches in the, in the legal arena will be familiar with the frequency with which I cite the 1992 Supreme Court case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the opinion that effectively upheld Roe versus Wade. And there's this remarkable line from the plurality opinion that we now know was written by Justice Kennedy, even though it was unsigned. The line is, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. It's a remarkable quote. I, I, I obviously strongly disagree with it. But if you, if you look at the epistemic relativism, I think that's the term that comes to mind there. It's this idea that the heart of liberty, the quintessence of living on this earth is just to kind of figure it out for yourself, right? It's like a choose, it's like a pick your own adventure novel. You'll flip to one page, you'll flip to a different page, whatever, because humans are fundamentally good is the idea here. And if we kind of just loosen all the rules, if we loosen all the norms, then you will ultimately kind of pick your own adventure and the net sum of that will conduce to good things. Just humans kind of free, without chains, without order, without structure, and and society will be good for that. But that is obviously the complete opposite of the conservative view, which I think it was kind of encapsulated by this famous quote from Edmund Burke, who said, quote, men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites in proportion as their love to justice is above their rapacity in proportion as their soundness and sobriety of understanding is above their vanity and presumption. And so forth. So you hear just two completely diametrically opposite perspectives there. And that does color, I think, a lot of our reactions to this. Conservatives necessarily will have more reactions to a tragedy like this that are more focused along structure and order, better parenting, more school security, things of that nature. So it was really interesting to hear Ali talk about that, something that I've been dwelling about a lot over the past 24 to 36 hours as well. But thank you so much for tuning in this week. More great programming for you next week. Until then, I'm Josh Hammer. See you next time.